Today is the transfiguration of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to see the glory of God. You know, sometimes it's just hard to see his glory. You know, we look around, yet we are distracted by the chaos of life and are blinded to the Lord's majesty. But sometimes we can see God's glory in the change that takes place in the life of a, of a fellow Christian. Now, let me tell you a bit of a story here. Healing House is a Kansas City, Kansas ministry that houses drug addicts started by a woman named Bobby Joe. Bobby can truly relate to the people with drug addiction because many years ago she herself found herself in this situation, uh, living on the streets and looking for her next fix. But then something awesome happened. Someone cared enough for her to tell her about Jesus Christ and present the gospel to her. And as a result, she accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior. Right around that same time, Bobby's mother passed away and left her an inheritance. She knew that many of the women who were addicted to drugs turned, would, would turn back to prostitution in order to support their habits. They would get arrested, be put in jail, and then released with nowhere to go except back to working the streets. Bobby decided that with the inheritance money she just received from her mother, she would do something about this and make a difference. So she bought an old retirement home that had been boarded up and left for rot, or left to rot. She fixed the place up and invited the ladies to come and live there. And as they did, of course, she told them about Jesus, the most important thing she could possibly do. Just as that building was getting filled up and things were going real well, the devil put his nose into things and tried to put a halt to all of this by moving a pimp in next door. So the, a pimp, a, you know, the guy that was in charge of prostitutes, uh, moved in next door. Bobby Joe started praying for that house, for the pimp's home, and then decided that God was calling her to gather some resources, and she decided to buy that house right out from under that guy. So she bought another home, filled that home up, bought a second, third home, filled that home up. Eventually, she bought an entire retirement community, or not a retirement community, an apartment complex, and, and that place got filled up too. This woman, who could have only been described as the worst of the worst sinners, was, who was freed from her sin. She was freed from her sin through Jesus Christ and has now passed that good news on, the good news of her freedom, onto anybody she can come into contact with. During the Christmas season, Healing House takes up an offering from the ladies in order to buy presents for the homeless. As a group, they would go out and they would pass out gifts to the homeless people and tell them this, this they, say, they would say, this is a Christmas gift for you to remind you that there is still hope and that there's a Savior who can save you. Some Christmases ago, the house van pulled into a gas station to fill up. At the station, some of the girls in the van were recognized by a police officer. The officer walked over and said to one of the girls, what are you doing here? I thought you were dead. He recognized another and then another and said to all of them, I thought you were all dead. He then called his partner over and showed him the women saying they're alive. In truth, just like each and every one of us, they were dead. They were dead in their sins. But now they are alive because of Jesus, because Jesus set them free, just like he sets each and every one of us free, free from our sins. Sometimes it's hard for us to experience God's glory and to feel God's presence because we are just too distracted by the things of this world. But I believe if we look really hard, we will find our awesome God uh, everywhere that we look. This morning, I want to take a look at how three of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, had the opportunity to experience God's amazing glory. 
But before we go any farther ahead of ourselves, let's take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for all the things you've done for us. I ask now that you come down upon me and allow your spirit to work within me. Allow me to say only what you want me to say. Lead me in the direction you want me to go. Allow me to ex ex extort, extort your word in a way that is accurate and to the point. And allow me to do my best and, and, and to put this, text of, this amazing section of scripture full of so much theology uh, on display to everybody here where we can all partake in it and go home with something that we can apply to our lives today. I thank you and I praise you in your name. Amen. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. If you don't look in front of you, I bet you there's one somewhere near you. Open up your Bible to Luke chapter 9. For the past several months, you know, we've been, not probably not months, but the last several weeks, we've been making our way through this ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Today, we're going to, going to look at what could be considered one of the biggest sections of scriptures, the most important and most theologically packed sections of scriptures in the entire Bible. And that, of course, is the story of what we call the transfiguration of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus. I'm going to start off by gaining some context on our text by looking at verse 28. So look at verse 28 of Luke chapter 9. Verse 28 says this, Some eight days after these sayings, he took, Peter, took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So let's understand what's taking place. So some eight days after these things, a little more than a week after Jesus was identified as the Messiah by Peter and his disciples, as well as the other events in the ninth chapter, of the beginning of the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, this event we're about to study takes place. Along with Jesus were Peter, James, and John. He only took three of his 12 disciples. Remember, his group that's following him is much more than just the 12. There are other women at the very least, not to mention, I'm sure, other men that were in their group, yet only 12 of them were disciples, and only three of them were considered his inner circle. Peter, James, and John are the inner circle of Jesus. They're the leading disciples, if you want to call them that. And it says he went up on the mountain to pray. He went up on the mountain to pray. So one question I had is, I mean, again, this is just me overthinking things because I need to know what's going on and trying to understand what's going on. Where do the other disciples and the other people with him go? For whatever purpose, he didn't take them with him. He left them somewhere. As we're going to see, he either left them at whatever village they were at, maybe Caesarea Philippi, which is where they were heading to last week, maybe at the bottom of the mountain that I'm going to tell you about in a minute. Nonetheless, we only have the three disciples with him on top of this mountain. Now, the mountain, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Neither, none of them, not one of the three, decided it was important to tell us any more details about the location of this mountain. All it says is the mountain. And again, that bothers me because I like understanding your context. Now, there are several options as to which mountain this historical event took place. I mean, in the end of it, though, to make things very simple, we just don't know. There is no accurate location where we can say the transfiguration took place. If you went to Israel, they would probably take you to the mountain that's on the screen. The mountain on the screen, if you want to call it a mountain, is Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor. It's the traditional site of, of this transfiguration, but I'm going to tell you in a minute that it's really not um, the best location. And this is why. So let me show you a map here. If you look at the map, right there is Bethesda and Capernaum. That's the general area that Jesus' ministry has been taking place in. That's where he has been located. Most of what he's been doing has been there. He's gone across the sea once or twice, but for the most part, that's where he's at. From there, last week we talked about how he went up, he, they were heading to this town of Caesarea Philippi. They were going north. So, 
or verse 28 just said, eight days after the sayings that took place at some point between Bethesda, Capernaum area, and Caesarea, so Caesarea Philippi, this event took place. So the idea would be if they were to go to Mount Tabor, we're going to go up to Caesarea Philippi, then go back down all the way to here. It doesn't really make any sense from a logical perspective. But like I said, there is no real logic here. We don't have an answer. I wish we did. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have some questions. That's all I have to say. So let me talk about some other options that we have um, when it comes to their location. Let's see what I want to say here. I would say that the distance between Bethesda and the Capernaum area and this town of Caesarea Philippi was only 10 to 15 miles, meaning, again, it wasn't a long trip. Even by foot, it was not a long trip. It would have taken place within that eight-day period of time, but I think it would have been a much longer period of time to travel all the way there and then all the way down to Mount Tabor. Uh, two other options here is if, let's say, they were on their way still to Caesarea Philippi, they have not arrived yet, one option would be Mount Miron, which is about 4,000 feet high, and it's right there. So there you go. Bethesda, maybe they stopped there on the way up to Caesarea Philippi. The other option, and this is honestly the one that I think most people believe is true, at least I do, um, it happens that on the, if they went to Caesarea Philippi and continued going up north maybe, uh, the logical location would be Mount Hermon, um, which is just located north of the city of Caesarea Philippi and sitting at over 9,000 feet, right up there, not even on the map. So up there somewhere. In the end of it, that really has very little to do with what I'm preaching on this morning, other than I needed to paint the picture. So there's the picture. So Peter, James, and John had the opportunity to be present for what I can only be described as an otherworldly event. Another worldly, I'm not saying out or out of worldly event, another worldly, some weird event, a heavenly event. As we study through the rest of the text, I'm going to ask three questions regarding their heavenly experience. If you look in your bulletin, there are three, uh, beginning of three questions, and there are, is a blank that you need to fill in. So if you would like to fill in that blank, you can give it to somebody else. So here we go. Question number one What did they see? What did they see? Look at verse 29 and 30. What did they see? Luke writes, while they, while he, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. So this first point is going to have a little bit more details than the next two points and the next two questions. But I think I need to, again, I need to continue under. We need to understand what the, what's going on here. So Matthew and Mark record that Jesus was transfigured before them. Luke does not use that word. One thought on why he didn't use that word is because his audience was primarily Greek or Gentile. And using the word transfigured might have brought to that Gentile or that Greek audience's mind was a Greek myth and other religions where the Jewish people would not have thought that way. Nonetheless, we're going to focus on this word um, transfiguration or transfigure in a moment. Uh, the Greek word for transfigure occurs four times in the New Testament, twice in Matthew and Mark in reference to this event. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, and Mark chapter 9, verse 2, the word is translated both times as transfigured. And I, there's, I'm gonna, there's a reason why I'm giving you this Greek information. Um, both times it is in the aorist tense. If you remember, the aorist tense is a past tense. It's a moment in time from the past instead of a prolonged process in time. So if I took out my phone and took a picture of us, that's the aorist tense. If we were to look back tomorrow at that picture. If I took a video, it wouldn't be the aorist tense. Meaning this event was a, a, a photo from the past, if you can envision that. And that's going to come into play in a minute. Our English word comes from the Greek verb metamorpho. 
I don't know if that word sounds familiar, metamorpho, if it doesn't, I'll tell you in a minute. It's made up of the word, the preposition meta, which means with, after, or behind, and the verb mafao, which means to form. Thus, the word means to change into another form, to transform and to transfigure. What word do you think I'm talking about here? Metamorphosis. That's where our English word metamorphosis comes from. That's the reason I'm telling you all of this once again. So the Greek word metamorphosis is where, that's where the Greek word metamorpho is where the word metamorphosis comes from. Metamorphosis is the biological process by which an animal physically develops after birth or hatching, involving a conspicuous and relatively abrupt change in the animal's body structure through cell growth and differentiation. The two things, two animals that came to my mind are the frog and the caterpillar or butterfly, right? That frog goes from the tadpole to a frog. It's a pretty dramatic change. And I mean, the butterfly, I would say, is even more dramatic. It goes from a caterpillar all the way to a butterfly. It, it has this metamorphosis take place. The same thing happened to Jesus. That's the point we're getting at here. Jesus' appearance was changed. He shined with a divine brightness during his transfiguration. Uh, just because I feel the need to give you the information, if you wanted to know the other two instances of this Greek word, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, is the third instance of this word. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of the glory of, to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So that's the other instances of this word. But we're not talking about those. We're talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. And now I have the question, what did they see? What did the disciples see? First of all, they saw Jesus transfigured or transformed. Luke tells us, as you see in the text, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. The New International Version said at the end there, as bright as a flash of lightning, other translations say Jesus became dazzling white. So Jesus came to earth as God in human form. He added humanity to his divinity, meaning he added humanity to his godliness. And this is an important theological principle. He did not subtract divinity or godliness. He didn't come to earth and cut half of his divinity out. He's not, it's not like he came to earth and it was only half God. Jesus was 100% man. He was 100% God. Something we can't understand because it's not possible for us. But for Jesus, it was possible. My point here is that the transfiguration of Jesus, the transformation of Jesus, was not for his benefit, but for the benefit of us, for the benefit of his disciples. I believe this was because Jesus was already God and did not need to be transformed. And also that error is past tense verb. It was an instance in the past. Jesus was transformed into what he would look like in heaven for the three disciples to see. When it was over, it was over. He was back to normal again. With all that in mind, he's still God. He is, there's no subtraction of divinity in him walking upon this earth. So he, the, the disciples witnessed Jesus transfigured. The disciples also witnessed with their eyes Moses and Elijah. This is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says the bodies of Moses and Elijah were never found. Moses' Moses's body was buried uh, by God. God buried Moses' body. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Elijah did not die. Elijah was taken up to heaven. Thus he didn't have a body. These two men represent the beginning and end of Israel. Moses has the lawgiver, and then Elijah is talked about as being, uh, he's going to be coming to earth at the end of times. 
Uh, Moses was also represented, he represents the law, where Elijah represents the prophets. Now, most people also see these two individuals as both having a key role during the end of times. So, the three disciples witnessed visually Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah. That's what they witnessed. Number two here. So, while this experience clearly involves seeing some amazing things, my next question hits on another sense that they had. What did they hear? What did they hear? And they heard two things. Look at your text, verse 30 and 31. First of all, they heard, or they heard the, Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about his departure, verse 30 and 31. Luke writes, Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the Greek word used here for used here translated departure comes from the, the verb or the, the, the noun exodus. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Not? It is a transliteration of the Hebrew word exodus, which means departure. Of course, that was the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. They, in the same way that the, that the Lord led the Israelites out of Egypt, God is going to lead us out of, of our sin and whatnot. This departure was to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. From this point on, Jesus indicated several times that he was on his way to Jerusalem to depart from this world in order to go to heaven and in order to provide, pave the way for us to go to heaven. Uh, my sermon last week talked about this a little bit. Look back at verse 22. Luke chapter 9, verse 22 says, or Jesus says, where'd it go? Uh, saying, the son, not my sermon from last week, my sermon from two weeks ago, uh, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Th from this point on, Jesus is he's on the road to Jerusalem. He's on the road to the cross. And that's just another very important thing to remember. That's what the disciples heard. They heard Jesus talking about his eventual departure, but they also heard, and almost more importantly, they heard God speak. They heard God speak. Look at verse 32 to 35 now. Verse 32 now Moses, now not now Moses. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. They were asleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, meaning Elijah and Moses were departing, Peter said to Jesus, "Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, three tents, shelters." One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying these things, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. So following Peter's attempt to build little tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, once again missing the point completely, God descends upon the three and overshadows them in a, in a cloud in a very similar way that he did in, in, in the Old Testament with the Israelites during the Exodus. God then spoke saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So let's break that down. First of all, this is my son. God spoke these same words to Christ when he was baptized. But this time, he's not speaking to Christ. He's not addressing Jesus. He is addressing the disciples. Imagine being spoken to by God. That's what took place here. We're going to see their reaction in a minute, and you're going to catch on quickly what their reaction was and why it was that way. The next part of the, what, what the Lord said was, 
Jesus is his chosen one, my chosen one. Uh, Jesus is the chosen one of God. This seems to tie in clearly to the fact that Jesus is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah. Then finally, God says, listen to him. As though they needed any more evidence to listen to Jesus, God just told them to listen to Jesus. I mean, and, and you can say, God just told us to listen to Jesus too. Listen to him. Do what he says. I mean, this, uh, where am I at? Uh, the voice from heaven is clearly telling the disciples to listen not only to Jesus, but also to his teachings, to do what Jesus said to do. So they heard two things. They heard him talking about his eventual departure, his eventual death, his eventual departure from the earth. But then they also heard God speak. Now, my final, third and final question about the three disciples' experience in witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus is, what did they feel? What did they feel? So we have, what did they hear? What did they and what did they see? What did they hear? And now what did they feel? Look at verse 36. Let's finish our, our text in Luke today. And when the voice had spoken, when God's voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. In those days is key here because it's very clear that they have reported what they had seen because we're reading about it now. But in those days, they didn't tell anyone, none of the other disciples, about what they had seen. Nor Luke, who is, of course, the author of this book. He obviously got that information from one of those three individuals, if not all three. According to Luke, the three men were silenced by this experience and kept to themselves until later years. Now let's turn to Matthew. Keep, I mean, you can leave Luke. We're done with Luke for this week. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. I want to see how Matthew ends the account, and we'll see how they really felt. Let's take a look at the feelings or the emotions that were taking place amongst uh, Peter, James, and John. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 6 to 8. 6 to 8. Matthew chapter 17, verse 6. Matthew chapter 17, verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. When they heard God speak, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself. So Matthew tells us that Jesus' disciples fell upon their face when they heard the voice of God, which I personally kind of hope is my reaction as well. God was speaking to me. I hope I'd fall on my face too, as they did. And the fears, of course, were, I would say, legitimate. This is God speaking. God is in control of all things. You better look out kind of deal, right? So Matthew tells us that, that they literally felt fear in their hearts. So what do they feel? And summarizing really the entire experience, Peter, John, and James experienced the presence and glory of God. They felt the presence and glory of God. There in the midst of, of this mountain, they had this amazing heavenly moment. But just like the rest of us, as I don't know if you caught on to this, they nearly slept through the entire thing. They nearly slept through this amazing moment instead of witnessing the glory and presence of God. And then their fears almost got the best of them. Their fears almost completely caused them to miss this amazing moment as well. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to close up with a bit of application. So this is my conclusion, so we're near the end in case you're keeping time. This is my conclusion, but I'm also going to make some application here. We need to open the eyes of our heart so that we can witness the glory of Christ. Just like we sang before, open the eyes of my heart, Lord right? We need to open our minds to God. It's up to you. I mean, Jesus, I mean, understand the context. You have Peter, James, and John are falling asleep on the ground. You have Jesus 
who has now turned into what you would call, could only be described as a divine being, with Moses and Elijah standing in front of them. Yet they nearly slept through the whole thing. How simple would it be for us to do the same, is my point, is what I'm getting at. So this means opening our minds and allowing ourselves to experience God's glory. He's there. He's here right now. But are you experiencing the glory of God? Are you experiencing the glory of his word? When we do this, we will know that he exists. There's no question in our minds. Let me read you a couple of scriptures here. First of all, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 to 23. The apostle Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards you who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of God who fills all and all. Uh, what I really want to focus on is that first verse, verse 18. Uh, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. That's the goal. Are your eyes open? Are you able to see what God is, what God is doing all around you? Are you able to witness the, the glory of God, the presence of God? It's up to you. You know, our attitudes are, are what, what allow that to happen. If we have a bad attitude, we have a negative attitude, we're not going to see it. You're not going to see the glory of God. Not when I'm preaching, not during Sunday school, not when you're reading your Bible at home. You need to have that positive attitude focusing on God. James, James Jesus' brother, says in James chapter 4, verse 7 to 10, he says, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your, hand, or cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom, or your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Draw near to God. Come closer to him. And, I, and I, I've said this before. There's, I think there's three ways we do this. This is the answer to every question you ever have. I'm going to give you the same answer. If you, listen, if you talk to God through prayer, listen to him through his word, and fellowship with him through your church, you will have more. You would be better off to be better able to witness the glory of Christ. Do you pray to the Lord on a regular basis? The Bible says pray without ceasing. Talk to him all the time. I mean, that, you know, that open line of communication thing, I forgot who I was talking to, but that's kind of the thought here, right? Pray without ceasing doesn't mean always pray. It's not physically possible to always pray. Eventually, you're going to be sleeping or doing something else. The point here is that you should have that open line of communication with God at all times. Are you always able to cry out to God when you're in need? Do you open your Bibles on a regular basis? And I don't mean just sitting here and listening to me do it. I can read it to you, but do you read it? So I have, I've said this before, you need to hear the word, you need to read the word, you need to study the word, you need to memorize the word, you need to meditate on the word of God. And in doing that, you will have a firm grip on your word. If you came up here, and if I was only listening to me preach, it'd be like me trying to hold the Bible with my thumb. It's just not going to work. 
But if you hear the word, read the word, study the word, memorize the word, and meditate on the word of God, you will have a firm grip on who he is and everything that's in here, including what his glory is. And then finally, I just think it's so important to be involved in a church. I don't care what church it is. I would love it if you were involved in this church, but if it's another church, that's even that's great too. Be involved with a group of Christian people. You have to be actively involved. Don't just be Sunday morning Christians. Be weekly, daily Christians, multiple times a day, where we can serve God with all our hearts. So let me finish off here. Seeing the glory of Christ does not need to happen in heaven or during some otherworldly event. You don't need Jesus to be transfigured in front of you to witness his glory. Seeing the glory of Christ takes place when we change our hearts for him, either for salvation, meaning you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and then after that, in your day-to-day -day walk with God and living for Jesus. When we live for Christ, when we put our lives on, on the road, on the way, on the path that leads to Jesus everything else will line up. It might not be easy. You might face struggles. But when you put your trust in Christ, everything will be okay. Believe in him for salvation and live for him every day. Let me close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for all that you've done. Help us know that you are such an awesome, awesome God. Help us rely on you when we're in need. Help us just trust you no matter what. And help us know that when we're in trouble, when we're struggling for whatever we're struggling through, that you have an amazing and mighty plan for us. Lord, we ask now that you help us live for you. Help us put you on display through what you do and what we do and what we say. And help us tell other people about you as well. Lord, I thank you and I praise you in your name. Amen.